You know, I think people think that. They think that, I mean, we all have about the, the real uh, push to the wedding day. You know, you see that stuff all the time. You see TV shows about it. You see, uh, you know, bridezillas and, uh, you know, here comes the bride, whatever, uh, bride wars. I don't know um, what all the bride shows there are. But I just know that there is a ton of money spent on, on weddings today. And I think the, the world has a wrong understanding about the wedding day. They look at the wedding day like they look at baptism. Do you know that? Because people see them as ends in themselves and don't understand that they're just the beginning. See, the wedding day is to be the beginning of married life, just as baptism is to be the, the beginning of your Christian life. And we switch them. We think of the baptism as the end result. Think of the wedding day. Oh, it's like I arrived at the finish line. Woohoo, I'm married. You're stuck. Yeah, lifetime. You know, we do that kind of thing. And that's not to what marriage is supposed to be. That's not what God has ordained it to be. And we've let a lot of things of our culture influence how we view and see marriage. And we need to go back and see what does God say about marriage? Because really, our world is messed up. I mean, we have wrong understandings of what it means to be a man or a woman today. I mean, think about that. Some of the basic things that we're trying to work through. I mean, we're trying, we, we want to talk about having a successful marriage, but we can't get the basics right. For example, just this past month, just this month in March, in Michigan, there was a woman who went to Planet Fitness. Have you guys seen this story? A woman went to Planet Fitness, okay? And she went to the locker room, and she was surprised because there was a man in the locker room. So she went to complain to the management. There's a man in the locker room. And they said, well, he, it's okay for him to be there. Yeah, that's what she said. And they said, well, it's a judgment-free zone here at Planet Fitness. And he identifies as a woman. Therefore, he can change the woman's locker room. So who gets penalized for this? The creepy guy in the, the women's locker room or the woman who doesn't want to change in front of a man? She, they revoked her membership because she judged him. Now, we're messed up. <laughs> These, this is just where our society is. And it, we have to recognize that there is sin sickness that's going on that influences people. And, and for us as a society, not to be able to say and call that out is wrong. And that's where we're at right now. That's where people say it's wrong. And, and we say, no, we have to be able to call sin what it is. And if we're getting those things right, and our culture is confused what it means to be a man and a woman, how much more are we going to be messed up in marriage? That's why we have to go way back and say, what does God intend? How did we get where we are? And how do we need to go where he wants us to go? So that's why we need to understand this passage. Now, what Paul, uh, what Paul is bringing out to us, and he's talking to us about this, because in Colossae, there was some confusion Remember, in, the, in uh, Galatians chapter 3, the scripture says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male or female. So there are people that are seeing this new upstart Christian sect, as it was then, going, wait a minute, there's like no men or women, what's going on? So Paul's writing, because many of these churches, didn't, they didn't have buildings, they were meeting in houses. And he's saying that these people, these unbelievers, are confused about what is going on in your fellowship. And we want to show you that the Christianity is not to upturn the entire, entire societal structure, but teaching us how to live within this society and to show us that we are committed to living out God's creative order for the glory of his name. 
Now, he's laying this out before him, and he wants us to understand uh, in these two verses a few things. First of all, he wants us to understand our roles. As men and women, we have roles in our married life. Now, you want to, I, I see it with athletics, I see it in music. You, if you want to really mess somebody up, don't give them a job or responsibility. Like, you see athletes all the time, and they're saying, what's my role on this team? What do I do? What's my job? Even in our, in our job, we want to know, what's my role? Where do I fit? And in marriage, that is supremely where we're to find our roles as husbands and wives. Now, they're not societal constructs. These are roles that are, that are transcultural. And that they, God has ordained since the beginning of time. Now, there have been distortions for sure. And we see a lot of these uh, cultural distortions and abuses that have crept in through time. And we're to call those out. And we're to seek to live the way that God wants us to be, fulfilling our roles. Now, we see, in order for us to understand our roles, we have to understand a few things first. First of all, God created men and women equally. Equally. Now, um, that should be a given, that men and women are created equally. That's letter A in your notes, that we are created equally. As we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither uh, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, um, I know in many societies this is not the case. As I was even researching this message, and, and we've talked uh, in my small group, and uh, that how women have been mistreated, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. And in some societies, especially those in southern Asia, women are really devalued. Matter of fact, there is a shortage between China and uh, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all these countries, a shortage of 90 million women because of gender-selective abortions. Now, it's interesting. The National Organization of Women in the United States has a really hard time because they're saying on one level that a woman ha- should have the ability to choose whether she wants to keep the child or not. So th- she can choose to kill this baby, but here they're doing it based on their gender, and they're saying, well, you can't do that. What do you mean I can't? Either I can or I can't is what these women are saying. But these women are, are finding out through ultrasounds that if they're getting ready to have a girl, because of the societal pressures, because of it's considered to not be as glory or worthy as a male, because there might have to be a payment uh, of different things that are going on, that they choose to abort the child. And that's a tragedy. If you look at the birth rates throughout the world, it's usually pretty 50-50. Don't you think that's God's way of saying that men and women are to be together and to be e- equal in that regard? And to see that one, they take that out, and now there's violence breaking out. There's just a confusion. Uh, there are people that are having to go to broker agents to get wives, and they go into other countries and steal the girls that are going on. And because they're not valuing women. Matter of fact, you're seeing within Afghanistan, uh, uh, there's no like women's health clinics because they don't value anything there. And they'd rather put a madras in where these women could get educated about Islam rather than get basic feminine health care that they need because the society doesn't value it at all. And that's not how we are to be. There's either that we're to value and see how God values and exalts men and women are both equally made in the image of God. Now, philosophers have called this ontological equality. It's a big word, ontological, right? 
Uh, ontological, it means at our essence. At our essence, we as men and women are both God's image bearers. Not just men, but men and women. Genesis 126 and 127 talks about this. says that both men and women are made in the image of God. Both men and women are equal image bearers. Now, Adam was created first. But God then took his rib and made and fashioned woman out of man. Now, it's interesting, and I know we've kind of looked at this. Um, some scholars have kind of laughed at this over the years, but they, they make note of that the woman wasn't taken from the man's skull so she could rule over him. She wasn't taken from his foot that he would rule over her. Taken from his side so she could nestle in his arm. Showing that there's an equality that is there. That God created the genders equally. And they were meant to complement each other distinctly. That men and women are to complement each other distinctly. We're meant to, to be together. Do you know that Eve was created because there was a, wasn't a helper that was suitable for him. So God then made woman to complement man. They're to complement each other. That, that each one of us come together in all of our differences to create this, this great complementary look at things, at the world especially. So we see that God uses us. I mean, Eve was created as a completer. In order for one to be incomplete, he or she must lack something. Adam lacked something that caused God to say, it is not good for man to be alone. Eve was created to complete that which was lacking. And it's important for us all to realize that she was not simply a second attempt at perfection. Not a second attempt at perfection. I mean, I, I've often joked with my wife of that. I'm like, I was made first, and she's like, yeah, but you were so bad, he had to make something better. So, actually, she's never said that before, but I'll get in trouble later. <laughs> so, it is important that we realize that. And likewise, Adam was created with characteristics that Eve did not have. They were created to complement each other. Therefore, the role distinction is essential for humanity to be complete. Now, it's interesting there. There's one aspect that often gets overlooked, um, and it's essential for our understanding of this very, very important issue. One aspect that is missed is that men and women together help complete the picture of the Trinity. Complete the picture of the Trinity. Remember, God is triune. He exists eternally as three persons. The three make one God, and they can't be divided with one another. There's three separate personalities, but one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three make one God. God is is Trinity and unity, unity and Trinity. They are interdependent of one another, cannot be separated or divided. And we see this picture is really brought out as we see in, uh, when, when God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, and that's page uh, 1 or page 2 if you have a pew Bible or one of the large print Bibles. And we see in that scripture, then God said, we're going to be, by the way, we're going to be camping in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3. So just be, be aware of that as we're going back and forth between this and Colossians. Then God said, let us make man... In our image, after our likeness, notice there's a plurality there, uh, not a plurality just of majesty, like let you know, as the king would say, but it's an understanding that, and many theologians believe that this is the Trinity embedded here in Genesis chapter one. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created men in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, meaning that both men and women are created equally in the picture of God, in, in God's image. Both men and women are made in God's image. Now, what does that mean? This image involves moral, rational, and spiritual faculties rather than gender likeness, since God transcends male and female distinctions. It may also include the capacity of a man and a woman to experience a oneness of fellowship similar to the one existing in the Trinity. God is triune, eternally existing, as I mentioned before, as Father, Spirit, and Son, yet all three are one. However, within the Trinity, there are different roles and function. So the persons of God are equal ontologically. Remember, at the essence, God is equal. But in, they are functionally distinct in each of them working out. For example, the Father planned salvation or purposed salvation. The Son purchased our salvation. And, and the Spirit then uh, produces the salvation within each one of us. And all three are operating interdependently and connected. So each, you see though, the Son submitting to the Father and the Spirit submitting to both the Son and the Father. And we have to understand that there is a submission even within the Godhead as the three come together in this great picture. Now, one woman named Luma Sims, she wrote this about her relationship with her husband and looking at the image of God and the image of Christ. She says, As a wife, I see my role in relationship to Christ in the words of the Apostle Paul. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God, 1 Corinthians 11.3. She says, as a woman, I already have a Jesus role in my marriage, the sacrificial giving of my submission to my husband. Should I try to grasp for his, his role? Should I try to swap my Jesus role for his? To what end? If Jesus, being equal with God, did not grasp for his equality, but instead submitted himself to the plan and will of the Father, should I, as my husband's equal, grasp for mine? How can that possibly transform me into the image of Christ? To understand any of our roles, we first have to understand the Godhead. Only then will any of this stuff make sense. Only then will it be thrown shown that these rules are not cultural or social constructs, but part of the warp and weft of objective reality. So men and women come together to form this picture of God, and it's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. But how, did we, how do we see this beautiful thing and where we're at today as a society? How did it get so screwed up? Well, everything is in the fall. Genesis chapter 3. We need to understand, turn with me there to Genesis chapter Three, that men and women have both passed through the fall, and each one is cursed differently. Meaning that there are distortions that have been brought in by the fall. So we're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, page 3 or 4. And in, in the, after uh, Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit, God pronounces curses upon them. There are consequences for their action. And these consequences are going on in uh, perpetuity. Um, and he says here, to the woman he said, in verse 16 of Genesis 3, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So ladies, when you're in labor, just blame Eve. That's all you need to do. I told my wife that. And she said, shut up. <laughs> I don't want to hear that right now. Of course, I had to be theological in the midst of labor. Um, 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, some people say that these distortions, yes, are introduced by the fall, but headship in marriage is is something introduced by the fall. But no, the headship in marriage was actually introduced before the fall. Uh, we see that in First First Timothy chapter two. You see it also in in uh, several other passages within the New Testament. But um, I want us to look at that verse for a second in verse sixteen. And I think the ESV, uh, English Standard Version translation, doesn't quite capture it. I actually like how the Net Bible captures it. It says this, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, very similar to the ESV. In pain you will bring forth children, very similar to the ESV. Yet you will want to control your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, ladies, how many of you want to control your husband? (laughs) I didn't really want you to raise your hand. That was a rhetorical question. Why are you raising your hand? Fail. Um, but it, it's very, very true. You, you see this going on. And we made the joke before, and we said it several times in here, that a woman marries a man hoping to change him, right, hoping that he will change and he doesn't, while a man marries a woman hoping that she will change and, wait, that she will stay the same and she does change, Right? So you get that? Do I need to say it again for myself? Okay, good. But we see that happening all the time. All the time within marriages. So we see that there's this desire for the woman to want to control her husband. This is why we see stereotype all the time when you have this older couple and you see this wife in the guy's ear and he's just driving and he's like this because she's doing what? Nagging? Do we hear that word very often? Do you ever hear that word in couples that she might nag him? You don't usually hear the man nagging his wife as much. At least, maybe I don't. But you hear that term that she's nagging because she's trying to, to change him. She wants to control him. And he has to, uh, he, he gets irritated by that. So there's this consequence on the fall for women. I mean, women then have a passive punishment, that is pain in childbirth, but then they have an active sin tendency, which is the desire to rule over man and rebel against authority. Now, that's for the women. Let's look at the men. Look at verse 17 in Genesis chapter 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we can see that our punishment involved hardship and work, and that we have a desire to abuse our authority men. Work is going to be hard. And we have the tendency to abuse our authority and to rule harshly. Everything has been distorted. So though you have this authority that God has placed you to have, you have a tendency to abuse it. And we see that happen all the time. Either a man becomes a tyrant or he becomes so tepid that he's worth nothing. Now one of the best documents to capture some of these distortions is what is known as the Danvers Statement. It's a statement which I'm proud to say that we as a church have championed. It was written by 50 scholars across denominational lines and gender lines, and it helps articulate and brings clarity to the husband and wife relationships as well as the distortions that had been introduced by the fall. And they say this. They say, in the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. 
in the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility. It inclines women to resist limitations on their roles, roles or neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. So it's messed everything up. It messed it up in the home. It's messed it up in the church. And we see this distortion being played out all the time. So we have to say, how do we then get out of this? What does God have for us? And that's where we go back to our passage in Colossians. Paul writes, and we'll we'll see that he starts with wives and he moves to men. So we're going to focus on the wives here for a moment. It says here, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. You are to submit. You are to, to be that one who gives of yourself. And, and because women are nurturers, that's what we're going to see here. That women are really, by submitting, are nurturing the relationship. Your job is to nurture the relationship. Women, by nature, are nurturers. Again, the fall distorts that in some different women, but by nature, that's how women are created to be. They're to nurture the relationship. Now, what does that mean? They are to submit to their husbands. Now, before we get to that, we have to see the other part, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, the word for fitting in Greek means fitting, proper. It's the idea of fitting within the structure. Your submission to your husband is based on your submitting to God first. Your submission to your husband is based on submitting to God first. That's first. That's why he says, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Because you're to submit to the Lord first. I remember one of the things that attracted me to my wife was a story that she'd related to me about how she'd interacted with her dad. I think I've shared this before, but she had this uh, situation. There was a guy that she liked, and she wanted to date him. And her father said, no, I don't want you to date him. And she was angry. She really liked him. But she said, I'm going to submit and he said, well, I'm glad you're submitting to me. And she said, I, you think I'm submitting to you? I'm submitting to God in you. And I went, that's the woman for me. That's what I want right there. Um, but it's very, very true because I saw that she, was not, she wasn't just looking at me. She was looking at God first and what, what God wanted first. So that's what you have to understand. Before you're committing to submission to your husband, that you're committing to submit to God. God, because God has ordained this. God has set it, a, set it this way, and it doesn't mean inferiority. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you have lack of ability or you're losing dignity or in personhood by in doing so, because we are equal within Christ. And we see within this relationship, when we are functioning the way we, we are to be functioning, you are actually becoming more of the person that God wants you to be, not a denial of it. And it means for you to surrender to God intelligently. This isn't just blind obedience. In our society today, they hear the word submission and there's a cringe. Even as I was, I re, I was uh, researching this message, I remember seeing an article with Cameron, uh, Candace Cameron Buer. You guys know who that is? She, uh, she was in uh, Full House. She's Kirk Cameron, who was in Growing Pains, his sister. Uh, uh, really devoted, devoted believer. And she made the press um, earlier, uh, what was it last year? Because she said that she lives in a submissive relationship to her husband. Next thing you know, she's on ABC News. She's in the Huffington Post. And every time they throw the article up, they have the word submissive in quotes. And these women are saying, how could you do that? How could you give of yourself that way? And she goes, she goes um, submitting to my husband is a great thing. She said, um, I'm by nature not a passive person, but I find that one of us has to lead. You don't see a country with two presidents. Somebody has to lead within the relationship. So I'm submitting to him, and I find that it's not weakness. It's strength under control, and I'm becoming the woman that God wants me to be. And I'm like, wow, sister, you go. Uh, to be able to say that on a, a website such as the Huffington Post is pretty amazing, or on ABC News, and get natural press for this. 
is incredible to me. That This is even in the news is incredible to me. 60, 50 years ago, this wouldn't have been newsworthy. This has been like par for the course. They're saying now this is news. God is always popular. Surrendering to God intelligently. Now, after surrendering to God intelligently, then you can make sure that, uh, then you can be submitting to your husband willfully. Submitting to your husband willfully. Now, when we parse the word submit, we're going to find something strange. When we break it apart and we really look at that word, it's, it's uh, in, and I know you're, you don't remember you fell asleep through your high school grammar class, but it's a present imperative passive. Now, it's a very odd word because when you look at it, you'd think present, present means present tense going on right now. Imperative is a command for you to do. Now, active, if it was an active word, it means that you were the one to do it. So if I say to you, go right now, go outside, that's a present imperative active. I want you to be the one that does it. Now, it's not an active, though. It's a passive, meaning that it's something that is then done to you. So this present imperative passive, meaning that you are willingly laying aside and submitting to something, uh, uh, to an authority. So it's, it's, you're actively doing it, but you're not. It's at the same time, I'm just, I'm letting it happen the way that God wants it to happen. So there's this, this, this really interesting way that that's drawn out. Now, the word submission is the Greek word uh, hupotasso. And I want to uh, see this word. It was actually used as a military term to describe soldiers submitting to their superior or slaves submitting to their masters. Now, the word has primarily the idea of giving up one's own right or will. It meant to arrange, for example, as troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. Submission, then, is not so much to a person per se as to the position of rank that is established to ensure order rather than chaos. The private in the army may be a better person than the five-star general, but he is still a private. Slaves in the average Roman household, in fact, were better people in many ways when compared to their masters, yet they still had to be under authority to ensure order in the household. In non-military use, Huputasso described the voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Huputasso is not a spineless submission, but as one writer eloquently described it as voluntary selflessness. It's a pretty great word, way to look at it. Now, I like how Tony Evans described it. He, as he's talking about it being a submission to a position, he said uh, that he was at, uh, speaking at a Promise Keepers event, which is a big men's uh, group to really help promote men to be better fathers and husbands. And they were being protested by the National Organization of Women. And they were marching outside of the gates of the location. And he says, they were complaining about our use of the word submit. They were saying that the word makes women second-class citizens. But at the same time, he notes this, the president of NOW, National Association Organization of Women, was on TV complaining about the word submit. Uh, I heard her call her vice president and give her instructions to fill, fulfill a certain task. I thought to myself, well, if the word submit is that bad, why are you, the president, calling the vice president, expecting her to do something based on your word? You see, it's only a bad word when it's in an arena we don't like. He goes on to say, many women have a problem with submission because they think, because I'm smarter than my husband, I make more money than my husband, I am more educated than my husband, I have more common sense than my husband, I can't submit to him. And he says this, well, let's suppose an 18-wheeler is trying to merge onto the freeway. Let's also assume that the Volkswagen is coming down the expressway so it has the right-of-way. The 18-wheeler has to yield. 
Now, the 18-wheeler may have more clout than the Volkswagen, but the Volkswagen has the right of way. Can the 18-wheeler say, because I have more than you, uh, you stop on the highway and let me go on? If there is an accident, it's the 18-wheeler that is going to be at fault because even though it's got more stuff, it's operating illegitimately. See, submission has nothing to do with how much you bring to the table. Submission has, to do with how much edu- not, has nothing to do with how much education, how much clout, or how much notoriety a woman has. It has to do with God's ordained role. So it's submitting to a position. He has the right of way, but what about to bad husbands? What about that? What if my husband's a jerk? Peter has a word for women in marriages where the man might not be a believer. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. That's page 1015 or the large print 1095. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, and this is a great verse uh, to underline, to memorize. And Peter says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, not somebody else's husband, not to all men, to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, to submit to the godly and the godless. Now, interesting, Candace Cameron Bure actually mentions this. She goes, you know, when I submit to him, and he might be wrong on something, and he sees that I've proven right in the end, the next time when we have that, dis- that disagreement, he is going to be more willing to side and listen to what I have to say. That's very true. It's a huge spiritual principle that is, that is active right there. So we understand here that we are to, ladies, uh, to submit to the godly, and the godless. You can't say, I don't have to submit. He's not a Christian. Peter is saying, hold on. That's not the case. You need to submit because you might be the only Bible he ever reads. He might be one to Christ because of you, so you need to submit to the godly and the godless. Now, this is not, by the way, an excuse for abuse. This is not that. The Scripture doesn't allow that uh, ever. Uh, we see that Jesus loved his wife, his bride, that he gave himself up for. Her. He didn't smack her around and beat her. That's not what the Scripture says at all. And that is not an excuse for abuse. If there is abuse going on, then you need help and you need to reach out. Okay? This is not a passage that's for that. This is not to submit to abuse or submit to wrong, ungodly behavior. It's not to enable sinful behavior to continue. And it's not talking about submission to something that the Scripture deems to be sinful. This is not that. Okay? Just to make that very, very clear. Uh, and if you need help in that, please see, see myself, see another woman, reach out. There are organizations uh, that are there, even in our community. Uh, we, we will try to help you as much as we possibly can with that. Just want to make that abundantly clear, that we're to help those uh, within that are going through very difficult times there because it is a very real thing in our world today. And it has often been cloaked as godliness, and it is not that because Jesus doesn't beat his bride. Just to make that very, very clear. Now, let's go back. You see, I want to see what your submission results in. When done correctly, your submission results in spreading God's supremacy. Spreading God's supremacy. Now, I'm going to have you turn to a, to a, a passage that we don't regularly turn to. Um, and I'm not going to delve into it so in, um, completely today. But I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, it's talking about head coverings. And the woman having authority on her head. Now, um, most scholars believe that this to be a, a very cultural thing that was going on, that this was a sign, much like a wedding ring, that a woman uh, was in author- um, under authority of her husband. 
showing that she's a married lady. And he's saying that you should make sure that you have and recognize that authority. But it's interesting, in verse 9 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have Paul, by the Spirit, writing, Neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, meaning that shows she's married, because of, now it's interesting here, because of the angels. Because of the angels. Now, what he's saying there is basically angels are in our service right now. Now you're freaked out. Okay, because angels long to be within God's, with God's people. And they, they want to see that we are living out and living out this authority structure that he has set forth. Because they themselves are under authority. And though they are created even more glorious than we are, they lack the ability to have the salvation that we can experience. That's why it says in First Peter that angels long to look and understand how we can be saved. And so, though we are created less than them, we will be exalted higher than them. But he's saying here that the women should have this recognition that they are under authority because it is pleasing in the sight of Almighty God. That's how God has set it forth. So we need to understand that. That God's messengers are present when we are worshiping and by showing that you are submissive to your husband, you are honoring God. To not do that is to dishonor your husband, which is ultimately a dishonor to God who set up the order of things. When we're doing what God wants us to do in the same way he wants us to do it, his glory and preeminence is seen by others. Now, let's go back. Ladies, we're, we're going to move from you. and Men, get ready. It's coming. All right, men, you are to, we are to, verse 19, you, we are to love our wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, it's our responsibility to love our wives. It's a command for us. Now, it's in the present tense, active mood, active voice. Remember what I said before, the women, it was passive? Now, because she's submitting to uh, authority, here, you're the active one doing it. You're the active agent. You are to love your wife. But my wife doesn't respect me. You are to love your wife. My wife is not a believer. You are to love your wife. Period. End of story. You are commanded by God to actively love your wife. Can I get ladies saying it, men here? We're to love, men, we're to love our wives. We are to love them. And we are to discharge our responsibility. It is a responsibility that God has given to us. You are responsible for loving your wife. You are to treasure her. You are to fulfill the vows that you made at the altar for her, to cherish her, to love her. And it's a choice. You have to actively engage that choice. Ladies, if you are a single lady and you are looking to be married one day, you need to make sure that he is going to love you to pursue you after he pursues God. We all have responsibilities, things that we know we need to get done, and our name is attached to it. Here, we're given a word that we need to fulfill our responsibility. It is your, it is my, it is our responsibility to love our wives. Now, what does that look like? First of all, it involves this, loving considerately. Men, you gotta, we got to admit something. We can be jerks. All right? I mean, seriously, we, are, we can just be jerks. We're pretty insensitive about things, especially when it comes to feelings and things like that. You know, that's why I, I told you one of the best car rides I ever had was with my best friend. We were in the car for three hours. We didn't say a word. It was glorious. It's just guys do stuff like that. Now, I love being with my wife, though, because it's different. You know, I like to be with guys, but there's something that guys don't offer that only my wife does. 
And I, I've learned over the years that I can just be like a bull in a china shop and say dumb things to my wife. How many men here have ever said something dumb to their wife? You better put up both hands. Because we've all said dumb things to our wives. I know I've said dumb things to my wife. And I mean, you know, it's, do you like my hair? You got it done? <laughs> That's a bad thing to say. It's a dumb thing to say. And that happens. All right? I mean, God, guys, we don't notice stuff like this. You know, at, 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 when I have one of my daughters come in, they're like, do you like my new dress? I look at my wife, and she goes, yes, you do. I do. I like that. It's beautiful, honey. Because I just, we don't, men don't think that way. So we have to understand that. We have to love considerately, considerately. And loving here involves doing what is best for the one loved. Sacrificing self-interests for those of the one loved and behaving unselfishly. The Greek word translated love is agapao. It's the all-give type of love. Not phileo, the give-and-take love or type, or nor erao, the all-take type, the kind of the sexual love. We are to give ourselves sacrificially for our wives. Jesus gave his life for his bride, and so must we. So we're to love considerately. Second, we need to be sure that we are leading courageously. Leading courageously. Husbands must not allow a bitter attitude to develop toward their wives because of the wife's lack of submission or any other reason. Now, the word here, it says, um, don't be harsh with them. Some translate that as embittered. It means irritated or cross. You ever get irritated with your wife? The attitude here is a specific and all too common manifestation of a lack of love. It means leading when she doesn't want to be led. doesn't mean forcing. It just means continuing to do what God requires you to do. It is not force. It is not causing to be bitter um, that she doesn't want to follow or doesn't respect you. It means continually showing that love, continuing taking that initiative. It means leading on, even if it means leading just by example alone, because she's not willing to follow. Do what God wants you to do. Love her and watch God change your heart. Authority, o- authority over doesn't mean demanding of that authority. Just because you're authority over doesn't mean demand. It doesn't mean force. It's an authority that is given voluntarily to you from her and should not be demanded dictatorially or enforced physically, emotionally, or sexually. Let me say that to the men in the house. Jesus calls us to love our wives like Christ loves his church. Did Jesus beat the church? No. We are to love and give ourselves sacrificially and consider to consider or continue to lead courageously, being patient and taking care of her. Now, lastly, I want to add one more thing. It also requires us to be learning continually. You know, in First Peter, it's interesting what Peter asks us to do. The scripture says that you are to live, or men, we are to live with our wives in an understanding way. Now, it's interesting that Paul, Peter asks us to do the very thing that men have a very difficult time doing, understanding women. But you're, it says that we are to, to know and understand that men and women are different. Women don't operate like we do. You know, they talk about that. I, I mean, I, I see that even in our, how different we are in our computer screens. Okay, my computer screen is really orderly. She has 9,453 icons of different things. Just that she thinks differently than I do. But that's okay. She sees things that I don't see, like different shades of red. There's just red. And not, there's like a million red colors. And women see di- things differently. But I need to learn to be considerate, but I need to learn about her. That's what I love about getting to know my wife. She's still a mystery to me. 
I'm not a mystery to her, but she's a mystery to me. Because I, I'm learning about what makes her tick, what, 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 um, what drives her, what bothers her, what hurts her. And that means sitting down and talking. Gentlemen, do you talk with your wife? Do you listen to her? Do you want to grow in your understanding and what pleases her? If we're going to make sure that we don't become embittered or they don't become embittered toward us, if we are to truly love them by sacrificing ourselves, we need to know what burdens they are carrying, what dreams they have, and how we can help them, give them rest, and meet their needs. And that means communicating, listening, and then making the appropriate changes. Now, if we're going to make this whole thing work, and I'm going to go through these rather quickly, um, we need to make sure that we are following God's recipe for daily living. Following God's recipe for daily living. Um, there are certain things that you need to follow the recipe. You can try it all you want, and if you mess up the recipe, it's going to be a really big pain, and it's going to be terrible, really bitter. Uh, just like I, I shared this before, when I was a kid, I, uh, my mother would make these cinnamon pies, and I, I, uh, I wanted to make one. I, I had this desire to bake a pie, and so she, she told me what to do, and I, I, I put all the ingredients together, and I, I crimped the edges. I made this beautiful pie, and I put it in the oven. It came out, and my mother was so amazed. She's like, this is gorgeous. This is an amazing pie, and she takes a slice, and she eats it, and her face just Because I had, I, had, I had switched the salt and the, the sugar. So rather than it being this sweet thing, it was just salt, and it, like, puckered up in her mouth. It just tasted so terribly. See, I messed up the recipe. Now, see, God's got a recipe for us to follow, and if we mess it up, it's going to be really bitter. But if we follow it, it'll be sweet. It'll help to make the marriage better. So let's follow God's recipe. Now, here's three ways that we can follow God's recipe. This list is by no means exhaustive, but it will help us. First of all, if you want to make your marriage work and you want to see how much your marriage matters to God, you want to see it not just survive but thrive, focus on Jesus, plain and simple. If you're both focused on Jesus, then that means you'll learn to to communicate with one another. You'll sacrifice yourself. If he is truly our example, then everything will get better. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have problems, but it means you'll be able to work through those. Because it recognizes you got your own faults. It recognizes that you have, you have problems that you are willing to lay aside because you recognize that you have struggles and you want God to forgive you, then you can forgive them and see, hopefully see the best in them and believe the best because love, we are, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. See, when, when we're truly submitting to Christ's lordship in our marriages, we see these principles being worked out and we believe the best, we hope the best, and we see God begin to transform our marriages in wonderful ways. So fixing our eyes on Jesus daily, it means learning to focus on him, reading his word, letting his word abide in us, and letting it transform us from the inside out. So fixing our eyes on Jesus daily. Secondly, fight fairly. Fight fairly. Now, in your marriage, do you ever fight? Don't lie. Everybody fights in their marriage. Matter of fact, in the Song of Solomon, I was reading that book this past week, just walking through it in my devotional time, and, and there's parts of it where you see the intimacy of the couple. You get a few verses for that. But you see a lot of chapters because there's conflict going on. And that leads me to say that you're going to have a lot more fights than you're going to have than making a lot more. You're going to have more fights. How do I say this politically correct? Than making love. I, you see what I'm saying? You're going to have more conflict. You're going to have conflict than you are going to have necessarily have intimacy. And you have to learn to work through that. And so, so I see couples that don't fight fair. And here's what I mean by fighting fair. Don't call your couple a name. Don't do that. 
Okay? Don't call names. Don't bring up the past. If you've truly forgiven, you can't, when you forgive something, you are removing your right to bring it up again. So to bring it up again in a conflict means that you truly haven't forgiven. See, you, that's what forgiveness is. You're removing that right. I am I'm giving that right over. I am saying that it's been dealt with. Now, that doesn't mean that the hurt is less. You're going to have wounds. But it's letting God heal that wound and not bring that arrow back again. Because we do. When we fight, we have a tendency to bring out all these past arguments and conflicts. And now we're not even fighting about the, other, the issue that we're dealing with. We're fighting about years of stuff that's happened. So we have to be able to, to learn to fight fairly with one another, respecting the dignity of the person. And you know, by the way, men and women know how to push the other person's buttons. You know how to say something that's going to hurt them. And that's not the way of Christ. You don't see Jesus doing that. You have to say, I'm going to believe you. I, I, you are a dignified person. I'm going to look at you when I'm talking. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to try to, calm, after I get heated, I'm going to calm down and I'm going to talk to you as a person. I'm going to hear what you have to say rather than to just interrupt you the entire time. All right? We've got to fight fairly. This is, this is the, the, the brick and mortar of marriage. We have to learn how to, to fight fairly. And lastly, forgive completely. Now, there's a lot of other things we can add. To this, but this is how we're going. This is what I want to see today, especially within this, this, uh, this message in this passage. There's submission, there's loving, but we need to see that we are to forgive completely. How often have marriages been ruined because the mold of bitterness has been left unchecked? It's just it's growing under the surface. We're to forgive one another. Don't hold on to past grievances. If God takes our iniquities and casts them to the bottom of the sea, never to see them or bring them up again against us. How can we do that to our spouse? So I want to conclude with this thought. Marriage matters. We can see that marriage matters. We all know it. It's not passe. It's vitally important no matter what our society says about it. It's an institution worth fighting for and worth dying for. Let's show the world that our marriages really do matter. Let's fight for them using our marriages to show God's supremacy in all things so that the world may know that God is alive and well. Because when I see, when I see the world and they look at us and they have all of these issues of marriage they're trying to, to exalt that are against God's word, and we see, we fight and they say, how can you fight for us when, I mean, fight against this? I mean, look at your marriages. How can you talk to us and say that this is wrong when look how much rampant divorce is? And it's causing the name of Christ to be blasphemed among unbelievers when we don't exalt and fight for our marriages. It is worth dying for. We need to fight for them. Use our marriages to show God's supremacy in all things so that the world may know that God is alive and well. And I'm not saying you're going to have a perfect marriage. Not that. But I'm saying is we need to take it off life support so it can thrive, not just survive. I don't want you to leave here today discouraged. If you're a single and want to be married, continue to wait on God to reveal that person to you and use your singleness for the glory of God. If you're satisfied and single and you see that as your gift, use it to God's glory. But point people that are your married friends to the word of God so that they can find how to survive in their married lives. And if you're a person who says, I don't want to be single, I want a spouse, wait on that person. Make sure that you have these principles in place. And this is the non-negotiables that when you enter into that relationship to find that future spouse, that you, if you see that they're not willing to do these things, throw them to the curve. 
Because they're not the person for you. God has that person for you, and he's not going to have, he's not going to require you to violate his word. And if that means waiting patiently because he's trying to do something in you, then do that because he's wanting to, to shape and mold you for his glory. He's not trying to punish you. That's not what he wants you to do. I mean, he created marriage. He said it's, it's not good for man to be alone. He made this wonderful thing, and he wants us to enjoy each other and let it be a picture, of the it's ultimate picture of his love for his church. And it's to point people to Christ. Don't leave discouraged. If you're preparing to get married, sit down and listen to this message with your future spouse. Talk over these things. Ask questions. Don't presume or go in that thinking that everything's going to be fine. Realize it's going to take work. I'm not saying that you ever have to jot every jot and tittle and have everything perfect before you get married, but I am saying that you better make sure that you're on the same page rather than in a different book. If you're barely married, hold on. Give your marriage to the Lord. Seek to do the things that we mentioned today and watch the transformation occur. If you're abounding in your marriage, then seek to pull others aside and help them continue and press on. Give them your wisdom that you've learned about what God has done in you and through you. Continue to testify to God's greatness and pray for your children that God will help their marriages. Parents, pray for your kids and their future spouses. It's one of the greatest things you can do. Pray for their spouses. Pray that God would use them, that God would would touch them. I pray that for my kids every night. I pray for their future spouses because I know that the second biggest choice they will ever make in life after Christ is who they marry. So pray that that God they would find people that would fear the Lord and walk with him all the days of their life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making marriage. Lord, I know that uh, there are some here that are that are having a really hard time that their marriage is on life support and I pray Lord that you might take the the uh, paddles of grace and and awaken that marriage that it might flourish, that it might bloom. Lord, show your grace, the power of your spirit. Lord, we know that the the power of your spirit who brought the, the Son of God back to life again, Lord, can bring back any marriage that could transform even the hardest of hearts. And Lord, for those who, who find their marriages on the, on the rocks, Lord, I pray that you transform them and you put them on the rock. That rock is Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are going to be married one day or want to be married, that they might apply the truths in this principle in your word and, and that they might seek to do all of the things that you have laid out and they might wait patiently on you for what you have for them. And Lord, for, the, for those who uh, are, are, are doing well and cruising along, Lord, I pray that you might take us deeper and use us to influence those around us uh, for the glory of your name. Lord, we thank you, we praise you for all that you've done and all you're going to do. And we give our marriages to you by faith, asking you to transform them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.